How many of you have ever made a plan for your life? Show of hands. <laughs> yeah, how did that work out? Uh, how many of you have sketched out everything you wanted to happen in the next 10 or 15 years? Sketched out a vision and a plan for exactly how you were going to get there. Do you remember your life plan? Do you remember how that, how that all played out? How many of you, if I had the power to grant you the ability to travel through time, how many of you would rush out of here to go immediately back 20 or 30 years ago to a younger you, how many of you would rush out, meet that younger you, and tell them everything that's transpired in the time intervening, the time between that separates that younger you from this older, more experienced you? Or what if a future you were waiting outside the church after worship this morning, uh, waiting out there to tell you everything that is going to happen in the next 10 or 15 years, uh, between now and the year 2035, say, or even 2024, for that matter. Would you rush out of here to meet your future self? Would you take him to lunch? Would you sit down with her over coffee and lean in, hanging on every word about your future? Or would you firmly insert your fingers in your ears and loudly repeat, la, 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 so they wouldn't spoil the surprise? Uh, I'll tell you, I have friends uh, celebrating anniversaries in a few weeks, and we were reflecting together. You know, anniversaries are those moments when we look back over the time that has passed. We compare our present reality with whatever anticipation or uh, expectations uh, we had when starting this blessed journey. Whenever two romantics join their lives together, uh, they do so full of optimism and confidence and the best of intentions. But you know, that innocent, lovely couple uh, doesn't really know what they're getting themselves into. Uh, no one really knows what they're committing to when they promise to stand together for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness or in health. Uh, you can't know, right? Because of the particular uh, joys and trials, the blessings and challenges that await you on your future road. Would it make it better uh, to know what, waits, uh, what awaits you on that road? Would it make it easier to know what the future holds? Are there things we should not know? The writer uh, Roger Shattuck explores this question uh, fully in his book Forbidden Knowledge from Prometheus to Pornography. His examination of taboo on one hand and motivating curiosity on the other is comprehensive. He moves from God's prohibition to Adam and Eve uh, to avoid the tree of knowledge of good and evil, moves from there to the dangerous powers of science, the destructive powers of the atom, for example, harnessed in the atomic bomb, or the ability to clone living organisms. From Faust to the Marquis de Chade, from Prometheus fire stolen from gods to Pandora's box, from Dr. Faustus to Daedalus and Icarus flying too close to the sun, from the lover's toilet to our own future. Are there some things we might be better off not knowing too well, Shatuck asks. 
There are, of course, some natural limits to our knowledge. There are some things we cannot grasp with our finite minds. Maybe, he suggests, maybe there should be more things unknown to our small minds. Not everything needs to be experienced firsthand, and Chautauqua concurs here with the poet Emily Dickinson, who was okay with limits to knowledge and experience. You may recall that Emily Dickinson was well known to be an invalid, rarely leaving her house or even her room. As Dickinson famously put it, I never saw the moor, I never saw the sea, yet I know how the heather looks and what a billow be. I never spoke with God nor visited in heaven, yet certain am I of the spot, as if the checks were given. God, in God's nature, is inscrutable. One of those things, both beyond our knowing and dangerous to know too familiarly. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes, we sing. In their Exodus sojourn, Israel walks this this tension between imminent God and transcendent God. The God who is close to us is also the God that we could not begin to approach or understand. This text that we read, to put it in a little bit of context, so Aaron had just made the idolatrous calf for Israel, the golden calf, as they waited impatiently for Moses to come down from Sinai. Aaron made the golden calf in an attempt to make God more accessible, uh, like the Egyptian or Canaanite gods. And Moses had been outraged. Uh, remember, he comes down the mountain, he sees the golden calf, and he shatters the tablets of the law on the rocks in anger. But here now, in our passage, very shortly after that, is Moses asking for exactly the same thing Israel was asking for, for more access, for greater approach to God, more surety. Moses and all of Israel had left their little-known world, albeit the world of Egypt and slavery, uh, comfortable in its familiarity, uh, comfortable despite its hardships. They left on the word of a God who promised to go with them. And now, now here they are in the wilderness. Now they want to know God more intimately. They, want, uh, prom they wanted promises and guarantees that this God would not abandon them in the wilderness. Ab abandon them as they themselves time and time again abandon God and faithlessly wander away. Hmm, perhaps Israel's fear of being abandoned is nothing more than, than a projection of their own implicit character flaws. Show me your ways, Moses asks, but God does not. Instead, again, God promises to go with Israel, to be faithful in a way that Israel itself cannot. Perhaps that is a comforting word for the people of God in transition. Perhaps, perhaps it's a comforting word for us today uh, in the world we live in. We would like to know what would come next, right? It would have been nice Thursday this week to have been able to jump forward a couple of days and know exactly what the weather was going to be like on Saturday for the Pumpkin Festival, but that's not the way life works, right? Uh, we'd like to know what comes next. What exactly is your plan, Lord? 
How are you going to turn the fortunes of this congregation around? Who will come alongside us? How will we grow? Where will Southminster be next year, or in five years, or in 15? The Lord our God. And instead of answering our various pleas, uh, hear God say instead only this, I will go with you. My spirit will not leave you, it will accompany you. I know you by name, God says. Uh, yeah, thanks God, Moses says. Uh, returning to ask again, clutching after reassurances, come on, show me your glory. Uh, Moses seeking for himself some intimate sign. Throughout the Old Testament, the danger of approaching God unguarded, unmediated is a recurring theme. Israel's warned not to approach Sinai too closely. Those who accidentally touch the Ark of the Covenant are instantly smoten, smitten. They drop dead. From having broached the respectful distance one ought to keep from the holiness of God. See, our frailty and sinfulness cannot stand in the presence, the pure presence of the holiness of God. There is a cleft in the rock, God tells Moses. I will put you there. Then as God passes, God puts, his, puts God's hand over Moses' eyes that uh, Moses will not accidentally see that which he should not see. That he will not accidentally see and drop dead from the sight. There is some blessing in the veiled nature in which we relate to God. I picture a, a parent covering their child's eye when something inappropriate suddenly appears in their path as they travel the world together. God covers Moses' eyes uh, that Moses will not accidentally see, that he does not glimpse God's full glory and die. God covers Moses' eyes, but then God does allow Moses to see God's backside as God passes by, uh, as God's presence passes the cleft in the rock. We may not be granted full awareness of God's presence or plans, but we can be grateful for the sure signs that God has passed this way before. Uh, Christina Rossetti has this poem, many of you will know it, who has seen the wind neither I nor you, but when the leaves hang trembling, the wind is passing through. Who has seen the wind? Neither you nor I, but when the trees bow down their heads, the wind is passing by. Does Moses ask to see God for himself, or does he ask because it's his job to know God and the pressures of the people the people who want to catch God, to put God in a box or an idol so they can see God whenever they want, so they can control God, domesticate God, declaw the divine and make it familiar. Instead, throughout the Old Testament, Israel has to be satisfied with these assurances, assurances that God would indeed be with them. God be, would be with them when they rise, with them when their fortunes fall too. Faith is a hard road that cannot be seen, but is built on assurances. We walk by faith, not by sight, says the Apostle Paul. But God also understands our frailty and our finitude. God understands our need and God accommodates our limits. God gives signs and wonders, powerful acts of salvation for the people of Israel, parting the waters of the Red Sea, food and water in the wilderness, God gives signs and wonders, and God eventually takes on the frail 
and finite form in the person of Jesus Christ. Let us see your glory, we may ask God. And God points us to the life and death of Jesus Christ. God points us to the cross and to the empty tomb. God points us to the grass bending in the wind, to the presence of loving and supportive individuals in our lives, to communities of faith and hope and love, signs of God's living, moving spirit in our world. Why does God have to cover our eyes? Why does God's fullness of glory have to be veiled in this world? Mm, I don't know. But I do know that there are signs and wonders that allow us uh, to catch glimpses of where God has passed by. Uh, God is present in the stark beauty of nature, in the love of family, even through hard times and trial, and the care of loving community, especially through hard times and trial. These are the signs of God's presence, God's faithfulness in this world. I think of the genuine love for one another I have witnessed uh, in this congregation and so many communities I have been a part of. I think of the ways communities have cared for one another uh, in the midst of a pandemic just a few years ago and other trials and difficulties of life. I think of the creative ways to show love and care that emerged even in the midst of social distancing. I think it's ironic that our live stream is down today because that is one of those creative ways that we uh, had figured out to keep connected in the midst uh, of, uh, of limits that we faced. I think of doctors and nurses and first responders continuing to do their jobs, putting themselves at risks even sometimes. Uh, I think of teachers learning new ways to connect with students uh, or those in the classroom who waded into a sea of possible infection every day, signs of God's presence and care for others by others. Who has seen the wind, neither you nor I, but when the trees bow down their heads, the wind is passing by. When I need to see God, I go to that cleft in the rock that is scripture. I read the story of God as told in the Old and New Testaments, I reflect on God's journey with Israel. I marvel at God in Jesus Christ, and I give thanks for the gift of God's Spirit that animated the early church, uh, that animates and continues to create and sustain the church and communities of faith throughout the world today, tomorrow, and forever. We may not know what God has in place for us, what our tomorrow as a congregation will look like, we may not know yet, but we can rest assured that God will not leave us hanging. In the meantime, I give thanks to God for the past of this congregation, uh, for the history of faithfulness, and for this present time in the wilderness with God's congregation. I thank God for all of you who showed up yesterday for a pumpkin festival that was a little bit chaos, but a little bit great. Uh, I thank God. And I'll close with this uh, anecdote from the poet Emily Dickinson uh, once again. Uh, Emily writes a note about 1883 to her niece Martha Dickinson and a visiting friend who would have been 17 at the time. And you remember Emily Dickinson didn't leave her room much, but I guess these young girls were a little wild in the house. Uh, and so she writes this note to them. 
She says that she hoped they were having superb times and was sure they were, for she heard their voices, uh, and these are her words, mad and sweet as a mob of bobolinks. She offered the world then this light-hearted advice. Uh, she writes in her note to them, if ever the world should frown on you, he is old, you know. Give him a kiss and that will disarm him. If, uh, if it don't, tell him from me, who has not found the heaven below will fail of it above. For angels rent the house next ours wherever we remove. I give thanks for the recent past and the decades and centuries and millennia that preceded these. I give thanks to God for the past and I give thanks to God for the unknown future. I give thanks to God for I know God has a plan. I even give thanks to God that I don't know what that plan is, even if I desperately wish I did. Uh, if I desperately want to know exactly how the future will unfold, I recognize that that is only my anxiety and my desire to control and contain every part of my existence. Omniscience, you know, the ability to know everything before it uh, ever happens, is the death of pleasant surprises. I look forward to being surprised by God's grace. Uh, and this is the continuation of Emily Dickinson's note. Who has not found the heaven below will fail of it above. God's residence is next to mine. God's furniture is love. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.